Welcome to The Word on Medicine, the conversation dedicated to examining medical innovation and discovery in Southeast Wisconsin. The Word on Medicine is presented by Selig Leeson and features the faculty and research teams of the Medical College of Wisconsin, sharing cutting edge new knowledge and discoveries. The experts you will hear from today deliver advanced care at Eastern Wisconsin's only academic medical center. And now, The Word on Medicine. Good afternoon, I am Dr. Doug Evans, and on behalf of the faculty of the Medical College of Wisconsin, welcome to The Word on Medicine, where knowledge is changing life. This program is made possible by a research and, and educational grant from Selig Leasing Company. In business since 1949, Selig Leasing has grown to be one of the largest and most respected independent leasing companies for small and medium-sized businesses in the Midwest. Selig Leasing has a unique brand of personal service and therefore is perfect to be the sponsor of the Word on Medicine, which will bring innovation and discovery across the radio to our listeners. A program brought to you from a uniquely dedicated group of physicians and scientists who are committed to a similar brand of personal service. We are very excited to bring to you our sixth program, which is devoted to liver and kidney transplantation. Two weeks ago, we discussed the management of trauma and the importance of level one trauma centers. I hope you were able to tune in. If not, you can find that program along with our previous programs on our website at mcw.edu slash surgery. And always feel free to send us an email at contactsurgery at mcw.edu. I am fortunate to be your host for the Word on Medicine, where knowledge is changing your life by making tomorrow better than yesterday. In way of background, I joined the Medical College of Wisconsin, which I will abbreviate as MCW, in 2009 as chair of the Department of Surgery. Coming to Milwaukee after 19 years on the faculty of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. I am very excited to be part of today's program and would like to introduce our panel of experts who will focus on liver and kidney transplantation. First is our program chair, Dr. Johnny Hong, who is chief of the Division of Transplant Surgery and also service line director for the multi-institution solid organ transplant program here in Milwaukee, which includes MCW, Frederick Hospital, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, and the Blood Center of Wisconsin. Dr. Hong came to MCW in 2012 from UCLA, where he was on faculty at the David Geffen School of Medicine and the Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Hong is an internationally known transplant surgeon who performs all types of liver transplantation to include those from living-related donors, even in young babies, as we will hear later on in the program. In the first segment of the program, Dr. Hong will be joined by Dr. Ehab Saad, Dr. Stephanie Zanowski, and Sarah Syker. Dr. Saad is, trans is Transplant Nephrology Medical Director at MCW in Freighter Hospital. He completed a nephrology fellowship at the University of New Mexico, and his fellowship in solid organ transplantation was completed here at MCW. He has been on the MCW faculty since 2006 and lectures widely on all aspects of kidney transplantation to include the challenges of organ allocation. Dr. Zanuski is Director of Tran Transplantation Mental Health for the transplant program and is a graduate of Marquette University where she received her PhD. She has been with the Department of Surgery and the transplant program since 2013. Sarah Saika is a transplant alcohol and drug abuse coordinator 
and Sarah will explain why this is so important in transplantation. She received her master's degree from the University of North Carolina and has been with the transplant program since 2014. So with that rather lengthy introduction, uh, Dr. Hong, can you give an overview of where we stand in solid organ transplantation and the challenges that are posed in, in 2017? Well, thank you. Good afternoon to everybody. Um, well, as you know, for patients with end-stage organ failure, uh, it's quite dire for them, and the only treatment for them is to have their organ replaced. So in the United States, there are about 130,000 on the waiting list. There are more who need a transplant, but these are 130,000 are those who made it to the transplant list. And unfortunately, we only have approximately 30,000 organs available, both from live donor or deceased donor. As such, one of our goals as, as professionals in the transplantation is to uh, improve the patient's chances to get on the transplant list. The same token, uh, being good steward of the precious resource, these are the donated organs, which are really the gift of life. So Dr. Zanowski uh, and Sarah Seiker will explain the role of transplantal health in, in, this, uh, in our practice. That's a great segue to Stephanie. You can maybe explain why I think many of our listeners will, will not understand why mental health is, is such a big part of uh, whether it be liver or kidney transplantation. Absolutely. Like Dr. Hong said, we want to optimize our patient's experience with transplant and give them the best opportunity to have a good outcome after transplant, but we also want to provide them access to the treatment of transplant. So we are actually privileged to have a mental health team that's devoted completely to transplant. So we have two full-time psychologists and a um, three full-time social workers and an alcohol and drug abuse counselor who all devote time to assess our patients who might need transplant and determine what factors might provide challenges for them in having a good outcome after transplant, but also protective factors, things that will help them from a mental health perspective be able to have good success after transplant. And our goal really is to maximize those protective factors and provide interventions from a mental health perspective that help reduce their risk of having complications after transplant. Maybe you can give us an example, Stephanie, so that, the, so that our listeners understand um, in, a, in a real life way, uh, from the standpoint of a recipient who mm -hmm. is, say, going to receive uh, a kidney transplant, or from someone who is going to donate their kidney, what would be the things that, that you would talk to them about that would, that would be complicating the donation process? So if patients have a history of significant substance abuse or um, psychiatric complications. And that is oftentimes just related to the magnitude of medical care they have received, the problems that have, have uh, been involved in their organ failing, for example? It could be. It could be a factor of them managing their chronic illness and having difficulty with emotional adjustment to that. And maybe some of them have coped with that by abusing substances to to sure. cope, but maybe they've had a long-time history of substance use, and that may have actually contributed to their organ failure. And then we want to make sure that they have the resources that they need to manage future stressors and, like Dr. Hong said, be good stewards of that organ and not have such high risk of relapse to substance use or to other poor coping mechanisms after transplant. So that's why we have the interventions in place to help maximize their functioning after transplant. And that's what Sarah is able to do for us as an alcohol and drug abuse counselor, which is very unique to our program. Instead of 
kind of ruling people out based on their history of significant substance use and saying, okay, go get help somewhere in the community and come back to us when you've been able to demonstrate a period of abstinence, we can actually provide intervention directly in our program and then allow them to move forward with the evaluation process and potentially have better access to that care at some point. So Sarah, tell, tell us exactly what you do and, and why your, your role is so important. Yeah, my role is really important. Um, typically, patients who have a substance use disorder use drugs and alcohol to cope with life. So now they're in this really scary situation. They're not feeling well. All this stuff is happening. So we have to give them new coping skills. Drugs and alcohol are no longer an option for them. So that's why I come in. I offer two different groups in transplant. One is a relapse prevention group. It's a three-hour, 12-session group. Um, where I get to teach them both relapse prevention skills and new coping skills, healthy coping skills. And then what's really unique is we have a continuing care program where it's an hour a week and both pre and post transplant patients can come and just get that continued support and help through life because sure. things don't end after the operating room. There's a big adjustment um, post-transplant. I think we'll hear over the course of this program the impact of, of this uh, of the disease that results in the failure of an organ and the impact of the transplant process is, is so huge. It, it, it must be virtually impossible to cope with this without some type of help. Mm -hmm. um, Ehab, Dr. Saad, maybe I can turn to you now. And if we can go, go back a couple steps to the practical aspect of a patient who is on dialysis, maybe you can explain this to our listeners because unless uh, a, a, a family is affected by kidney failure, they may not know what dialysis is. And an obvious question would be, why not stay on dialysis forever? Why do we actually need uh, a kidney in 2017? Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That's a very good question. Uh, if we look into chronic kidney disease and once the patient starts going on dialysis, um, there are several modalities that patients can do uh, for what we call it renal replacement therapy. The most common one is what we call it hemodialysis, and the standard one that the patients go to the dialysis unit, they are hooked to a machine for four hours, they get their blood clean, they are returning it to them, and then they do that uh, three times a week. There are other hybrids for that when they do something known as short daily hemodialysis, and some patients will do another modality as known as peritoneal dialysis. Uh, we accumulate. But basically, hemodialysis is three times a week? That's correct. For, uh, for four hours. That's correct. So, just an incredibly life changing event. Absolutely. Not only that, but you, if you take into account uh, that the patient has to drive to the dialysis unit, has to have some vitals checked before going on the machine. Then you put them on the machine and then you recover them after they are on the machine. Then they have to drive home. And then you start accumulating these toxins in their body. And then in four hours, do you try to do the job that's been done in 40, 48 hours by their uh, kidneys while they are working? And uh, if we also take into consideration that how much of a kidney function dialysis is providing to the patient, at the best between 10 to 15 percent, uh, that is when you have the most ideal dialysis in place. So imagine that you have 100 percent kidney function, and now you are just keeping the patient alive by being on dialysis, and you all you can provide them is 10 to 15 percent of kidney function. Also, if you look at the mortality uh, on dialysis, despite all the advances that we have in place, about 18% every year patients will die while they are on dialysis. So that comes into the picture, can we do better? 
and for the ideal patients or for the patient that has the resources or that we can work with them, we do kidney transplantation. And um, the kidney transplantation can provide between 50 to 60% and sometimes even more than that if you have a kidney from a living donor, uh, which definitely can uh, exceed what you can get from um, being on hemodialysis. Not only that, but also the lifestyle now, you don't have to drive to the dialysis unit, you have more energy, you are back to society, you are functional, and you are enjoying your life with your family. Maybe I can ask in the final uh, two minutes of this segment of the program, maybe I can ask you and Johnny to talk a little bit. We're gonna, we are going to cover live uh, donation later in the program. But if we had a patient in our intensive care unit who was uh, uh, unfortunately in a very bad car accident and, uh, and was declared um, um, as having brain death and ha- the family had decided to donate the kidney, with all the, uh, the needed patients in the in this area of southeastern Wisconsin, uh, who would need that kidney? How is it determined who actually would receive that kidney once it's been decided by the donating family that that kidney will be available? So, uh, in all types of organ donation, it is being controlled and regulated by the federal government by a third party. So, with regard to organ distribution and allocation, organ allocation is based on the medical need, whether it be the number, the, the length of being on the wait list or the urgent need for, for a, a liver transplant or a heart transplant, for instance. Now, distribution is controlled by the federal government. So uh, that goes into a national registry, national system, and allocates them accordingly. Great. Well, thank you all very much. This will be the end of our first segment. We'll take a short break and be right back with our program on liver and kidney transplantation. You're listening to The Word on Medicine. If you'd like more information about something you heard today, call 414-805-3666. Now, here's more of The Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130 WISN. Welcome back. This is Dr. Doug Evans from the Medical College of Wisconsin, and we are continuing our program on liver and kidney transplantation. In the second segment of this program, I want to welcome Drs. Mike Zimmerman, Uh, and Catherine Lauer, Shannon Sova, and Tanya Anderson. Dr. Zimmerman is Surgical Director of Kidney Transplantation and a senior member of our transplant team. Dr. Zimmerman received his medical degree from the University of California, San Francisco, and completed his surgical training at the University of Colorado. After a fellowship in multi-organ transplantation at UCLA, he returned to the University of Colorado where he began his faculty career as a surgeon scientist. After eight years at Colorado, we were fortunate to recruit him to MCW in 2014. Dr. Catherine Lauer is Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs in the Department of Anesthesiology at MCW. Dr. Lauer is a graduate of Marquette University and the Medical College of Wisconsin. She also completed her residency training in anesthesiology here at MCW and joined the faculty in 1987. She is currently Chief of Staff at Freighter Hospital. Shannon Sova is a liver transplantation coordinator who joined our program in 2013 from Emory University in Atlanta. Shannon is a graduate of Marquette University and currently spends all of her time devoted to the liver transplant program, specifically those patients awaiting transplant. 
Tanya Anderson is a graduate of Concordia University and has been with the transplant program since 2015. Most recently, she has coordinated the evaluation process for those considering organ donation, specifically living organ donation for the kidney and liver programs. Well, thank you all for joining. Uh, Dr. Zimmerman, Mike, maybe you can follow up on the last segment uh, and, and review for our listeners the different types of uh, organ donation, and then we'll move from there to kidney and liver. Mike? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, uh, Dr. Evans. Uh, it's important, I think, to underscore that there are several types of donors, um, but that we are able to go from A to Z in the process and achieve um, really good outcomes with no matter what the donor type is. That being said, um, there is uh, what's called a living donor, which is a person who is completely healthy donating an organ or part of their organ. Um, there's also what's called a deceased donor, somebody who, as you mentioned previously, is uh, brain declared brain dead, and then uh, typically after a a traumatic um, traumatic event, a car accident, or some other um, uh, accidental event. Correct. That's correct. That's correct. And it's been determined either by the patient themselves or the family uh, that they would like to donate uh, their organs. So if we have a a, a patient uh, who is dis- who is donating their kidney, for example, either a a live donor or unfortunately after a traumatic event. Take us through the process of of what happens um, once uh, a recipient is identified. How is is the operation done and what is the the procedure? Well, I think it's it's slightly different in for living the living donor situation versus the deceased donor situation. For the living donor situation, it's an elective surgery where we take the donor back, make sure that the organ that, that everything is normal and looks viable, and then we take the recipient back. So those operations are timed very close together. Versus the deceased donor situation where it's more of an emergent operation based on when the organ is available for that recipient. So it could be any time of the day or night. Uh, that we be perform the operation. So we'll, as we'll hear in our next segment for the living donation, that typically is a daytime event, um, whereas a deceased donor operation could occur any time, uh, day or night. That's right. That's right. And as you can imagine, we have to have a lot of infrastructure to deal with either of those situations. Uh, under Dr. Hong's leadership, we've been able to develop that. Uh, but we can't do it, as you know, without a whole team of people who are very smart, very positive, and very forward-thinking, like the group that we have today. Well, maybe I could turn to Dr. Lauer now. Kathy is uh, is runs the anesthesiology program for the for the transplant arena. Kathy, explain the complexities of uh, start with maybe kidney and then move to liver, and you're in both cases you may have a live donor involved. So we're talking multiple operating rooms and the magnitude of the operations. Well, correct. Well, thank you, Doug. Um, the, the kidney donation and recipient um, process works in such a way that we have those patients um, anesthetized in proximity to each other so that there can be smooth communication between the surgeons. And we have, along with, as you can tell, we have a multidisciplinary team who Looks who helps them manage both the intraoperative management as well as some of their postoperative pain so that we can minimize that for our donors and recipients for kidneys. And, and then with the liver transplant population, that is a, it's a bigger operation. Um, it's, it's still, we still have excellent outcomes 
but that is a that is a bigger process where the anesthesiologists, for example, are part of a big multidisciplinary team that um, screens and evaluates these patients. Um, we have a specialized liver transplant anesthesia team who is very experienced. Um, who it takes a separate call, so they are at the ready any anytime, twenty four seven, to take care of these patients. And, um, Shannon, maybe I can I can turn to you now, and you can first describe uh, what what you do and and the importance of uh, the pre transplant coordinator, and then in follow up to our last segment, talk a little bit about how the world decides who receives an organ uh, once it becomes available. Thank you. So my job um, is to work patients up from the moment that they come to our hospital for liver transplantation. So they can be referred over either from their primary care physician, from their liver medical um, physician, or they can even self-refer to our center. So that process for working patients up involves a multidisciplinary team. We heard before from Dr. Zanowski and Sarah Syker, who are involved with our patients, as well as social workers, finance, dietary, and pharmacy. Besides that multidisciplinary team, they then go through a comprehensive medical evaluation. We work them up from their heart, lungs, abdomen, and tons of blood work to finish that evaluation. Once that's completed, we then bring them to a committee. That committee consists of all the team members that they met, including our anesthesiologist, infectious disease physicians, or any other specialists that we would need to take a look at that medical evaluation and the psychosocial evaluation. And then we decide as a group who's appropriate to put on that list. And is there any difference between a patient, a, a potential recipient of a liver transplantation between uh, someone who may be considered for a live donor transplant versus a deceased donor transplant? Yeah, there are two separate evaluations. So the living donor, when they come, they have their whole team um, as well. And they have a special person that works with them called a living donor advocate as well. So they also have to go through a comprehensive medical evaluation and meet the whole multidisciplinary team to be worked up as a donor. Well, that's a perfect segue to Tanya. Tanya, can you comment upon that, uh, the living uh, donation process and and that that emerging program of living donor champions? Sure. Um, thank you for having us. Uh, uh, Freighter does offer once a month a living donor champion program where both recipients and interested donors can come and learn about ways to get the story out that they do need a living kidney donor. Um, a lot of times recipients are... Uh, overwhelmed with dealing with their health process and so they don't have the time to advocate for themselves for a living donor. So that's where we encourage recipients to find someone who can advocate for them that they do need a living kidney donor. Uh, some of the ways that we encourage patients to do this is by... So just so, I, just so the listener understands this, so for example if I uh, had, was on hemodialysis and I needed a kidney, you're basically saying that, that I would be a little inhibited about asking my family and friends to donate a kidney, whereas a, a somewhat more objective third party could advocate for me. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. And that can be a family member, it can be a friend, an acquaintance, where they can actually talk to other individuals about um, possibly them donating their uh, kidney to them, the recipient. Fantastic. Mike, why are living uh, donors in the in the kidney transplant arena fairly common and living donation in liver transplantation 
much less common. What is the difference between the two? Well, I think the risk uh, and the size of the surgery are dramatically different between those two situations. You know, a ki- the kidney surgery itself is very safe uh, for a living donor. Uh, it's very quick. Uh, rarely takes us longer than an hour to take out a kidney. Uh, we can do it with almost minimal blood loss. Uh, alternatively, a liver donor, it's just a much bigger operation to do what's called a hepatectomy, a partial hepatectomy, where you remove part of the liver to give to another person. It's a bigger operation. It takes longer. And I think the risk is much higher, uh, despite the fact that both examples, uh, patients are totally healthy walking to the door. And how many programs in the United States, how, how, how common is it that transplant programs have living kidney donation compared to living uh, liver donation? I think most programs in the United States uh, or North America have a live donor kidney program. Uh, Live donor liver transplant is a much rarer thing. Uh, It's usually reserved uh, for centers that have that expertise because you can imagine, as I said before, it takes a whole group of qualified professionals to do this in a safe way multiple times. Uh, So it really requires a little more special expertise than, uh, than kidney donation. Well, maybe I'll finish in our last minute, and I'll, I'll turn to Dr. Lauer for a surgical question so that we have uh, someone who is, is completely honest and unconflicted here. So how long does it take to, uh, to do a kidney transplant in comparison to a liver transplant? And maybe you can give our listeners, uh, in addition to what uh, Mike Zimmerman has said, a little bit of an under, a feel for the, the magnitude difference of the operations. Well, as Mike said, I completely agree. The kidney transplant, even the receiving of a kidney from um, a donor is a much smaller operation and it's got a longer history and it's um, much less blood loss than um, a liver transplant surgery. They usually last a little more than an hour. Um, The patient's to the patient, actually, it doesn't make that much difference because you lose all that time when you're anesthetized. So for a patient who's receiving either a liver or a kidney, they, are, they close their eyes, they wake up, and their time has passed. I always say to the families, for them, it's time goes so much slower. Um, however, a liver transplant um, operation can last anywhere from four to six hours. It's a much bigger trespass on their body. Um, however, you know, it's, it, it also can be done safely, but you do need a multidisciplinary team and, and a group of, of people that really have a program that, that can keep a patient safe. And after the operation, typically the recipient of a kidney transplant would go to the recovery room for a couple hours. Correct. And then go to a room on the floor. Correct. Whereas yeah. the liver transplant recipient would virtually always go to the intensive care unit. Correct. We always keep the patients. Usually we also keep their breathing tube in for a period of time while they can get their, get through the roller coaster of, of what, it, what it means to have a liver transplant. Um, but usually keep them sedated, sleepy, so, so for them they'll just be asleep. Sure. Mike, the last 30 seconds, I know that uh, you and uh, Johnny Hong have championed the transplant intensive care unit. Maybe describe that for our listeners. Well, I think it's a it's a very, very valuable tool that's evolved over years, um, whereby we have a, a ICU setting 
specifically dedicated to our transplant patients, both donor and recipients. We have ongoing education with those ICU nurses. It's to the point where the expertise level is so high that they already know what we want before the patient even arrives in the ICU. Um, and it's just a much safer environment, and it's a very special place. There are very few of them exist uh, in North America. Great. Well, thank you all very much. We'll return after a short break. Talking about innovative medicine with top experts. It's the Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130, WISN. You are listening to the Word on Medicine, where the faculty of the Medical College of Wisconsin are making tomorrow better than yesterday. In our final segment of the show, Dr. Hong will be joined by Dr. Janessa Price and two wonderful people, all recent and well-known transplant donors. The perspective of our patients and their families is so important as it is their opinion of the effectiveness of our care that is really important. Dr. Janessa Price received her PhD in psychology from the University of Cincinnati. She joined the MCW faculty in 2016 and will further discuss the complexity of organ donation both between relatives and those who are not blood relatives. From the patient perspective, we are most grateful to have both of these areas represented. Claire Verstegen donated part of her liver to her daughter, Briel, and Brookfield Municipal Judge Joanne Ehring donated a kidney to her close friend, Milwaukee Court Judge Derek Mosley. Thank you all for sharing your stories of hope and inspiration with us today. Uh, Dr. Price, Janessa, we'll start with you. We have talked a little bit uh, in the program about the um, the perspective of the recipient and the challenges the recipient has 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 to undergo. We have not really talked about uh, those issues on the donor side. Maybe you can explain that to our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, there are some expected challenges that come up for our donors. So, you know, the challenges that can come with, for example, if it's a family member, um, helping to provide care to that individual, providing support to that individual, and then going through the donation process. Um, you know, really thinking about what could come up for you in terms of medical challenges, thinking about, um, you know, being in the hospital, not being able to provide that support. Some of those expected challenges also occur with respect to the mood. So, um feelings of depression, feelings of anxiety. Um, what also can come up sometimes, in, and this is the importance of having the multidisciplinary team evaluate the patient and having the psychosocial evaluation, is really looking at those risk factors that might be present for the donor. So does the donor um, present with any challenges psychiatrically with their history, um, with their history of coping or with treatment, and if those challenges are present, how can we provide the resources through our mental health program to optimize how they might function sure. post-transplant? For the most of us in this room today are, are relatively familiar with medicine. We deal with it every day, and that's that's our our life and our job. What do you do uh, with the donor who is simply just nervous? I am. Um, I'm really scared about undergoing an operation. I know it's something that I would like to do, but I'm just petrified of this. Yeah, and a lot of that during that psychosocial assessment comes from having that conversation with the psychologist and you know normalizing that experience, providing some psychoeducation about um, that most donors do feel that. Um, and 
you know, across a number of domains. So, you know, with respect to the social support arena that I talked about earlier, with the surgery itself and what can come with that, there's oftentimes um, a change in role for a while. So while you're recovering, not working, um, having someone else take care of you, um, being able to maybe continue to provide that emotional support to that individual as well. If there are some you know, risk factors that are present prior to donation, um, so for example, there are some risks in terms of increased depression or anxiety or, or challenges with you know, a traumatic response. So what can happen post-surgery and, and as you're recovering, considering that experience to be quite traumatic and experiencing um, symptoms that are really distressing with regards to that. Um, typically what we see is for those patients who have histories consistent with that before donation, we want to try and provide some interventions and resources prior to that to optimize although function after and potentially reduce the impact on functioning related to those symptoms. So certainly within families, there can be uh, suitable donors who uh, perhaps just aren't sure they're, they can uh, come, to the, come to grips with actually doing it. And then there can be situations, I'm sure, as, as Claire will uh, talk about, where uh, you probably can't prevent them from donating. There's nothing more powerful than um, than the bond between certainly a mother and their child. And Claire, you you donated part of your liver to your daughter. I sure did. Maybe you can tell us that whole story. Uh, well, my daughter was born uh, full term. We thought she was a healthy newborn, had a little bit of jaundice that they just attributed to the newborn jaundice. Uh, it seemed to kind of go away, but... I kind of, I do have a medical background also. I'm a registered nurse. So I kind of had this little inkling in my back of my head all the time. Like, is she still a little jaundiced? Is it just her skin tone? And I'd thrown it out to my family members. They kind of thought I was kind of not thinking that was true. Um, but right before she was two months old, we brought her to the doctor. And they confirmed our fear that she was, in fact, jaundiced. And her liver panel was through the roof. So we got sent down to Milwaukee a day later, um, thanks for the amazing turnaround care, and within a week she was diagnosed with biliary atresia and had a first surgery to try to restore the bile flow out of her liver. Unfortunately, the liver was already too damaged, and by the time she was seven months old, she was listed for a transplant. Wow. And and how did you find out that you might be a, a possible option to save her? Immediately, I knew there was the option of live donor. I actually have known someone in my local area who had had the same experience with their child. Um, it's very, very rare, but unfortunately, I had known of this situation, and immediately I knew I wanted to be her donor. What can be better than a liver coming from her mom? Um, unfortunately, she was too small because part of the liver failure aspect is they don't grow. She was in the bottom part of the charts, if even on the charts. So when I first went towards Dr. Hong asking if I could be the living donor, they agreed to work me up, but my liver was too big to fit in her. So Johnny, what, what are some of the challenges that occur with, with small babies? And two questions, uh, how do you handle the size issue? And then secondly, um, if, if um, there isn't a, a family member to donate, what would the weight be? Uh, otherwise for a liver for a tiny baby? Yeah, for um, 
children under five years old, their risk of dying while waiting for an organ is six times higher than an 11-year-old child, just simply because uh, they're very small and it's, and it's oftentimes so difficult to find the right size. Um, for patients with, with, um, uh, without any suitable live do donor, then our program uh, has the expertise on uh, in splitting an, a deceased donor that's been donated as a whole organ, that we split that liver into two, and hence we're able to t save two lives uh, from one donated liver. This is on the deceased donor. So I, I think um, what the threat of our program is that we're able to offer all these options for the kids, knowing that uh, kids under five years old um, are six times at a higher risk of death without any uh, opportunity to get transplanted. Wow. So, Claire, how did we end up with a happy ending to this story? Um, through her sickness, she her liver continued to fail for her. And in part of that, they can develop some fluid that builds up in her abdomen. That fluid, in turn, stretched out her belly so that my liver would fit. By the time she was so sick, they told me she was not leaving the hospital until she had a transplant. And I immediately said to Dr. Hong, it's me, it's me. Um, they continued my, the rest of my workup that they had put on hold when she was too small because he agreed that the belly was large enough to accept it, and it was a go. Wow. Johnny, um, maybe a uh, couple minutes on the, uh, the technical challenges of the operation. And obviously mom was probably operated on at Freighter Hospital, and her daughter was at Children's. How did you orchestrate all that? Our programs integrated both the adult and pediatric. While it, from the outside it may seem very complex, I think we have a really well-oiled, well-trained group of expertise that could carry this task, you know, uh, just part of a day job. And so I think uh, one most important thing that we remember is patient safety, which includes our donor. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Joanne, maybe I could, I could turn to you. Um, not only did you donate your kidney to a very close friend, but your story has probably stimulated countless uh, other donations. I mean, I, you probably had no idea that, uh, that there would be such an incredibly positive effect of this. Um, maybe for those listeners who aren't familiar with, with your story, you could uh, recount that for us. Um, well, I was started that um, when Derek was sick, um, he needed a transplant. Uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to step up. And, I, and how and long had this. you known each other? Um, for about 14 years at that time. Wow. Um, and he was sick. Um, we are so different, and, my, and I knew that um, I needed the one thing that you really need is the same blood type. My children are an A. He's a B positive. I thought I was clearly an A. So I started donating blood and found out I was also a B positive. Um, so that was the beginning steps. Um, as far as knowing to, uh, to give a part of me or a, an organ, um, there was no fear. I mean, it, it, I have to say it was the best opportunity ever given to me in my life to be able to, be, to give my or kidney to him. Um, I always compare it to everybody knows somebody who has had cancer and someone close to them, and, and you feel so helpless. You can't do anything. And here I'm able to offer a part of me to, to save his life. Now, because we were so different, I thought that um, 
or every, I guess our team thought that I, I was going to be a paired match or a part of a chain. And I kept joking, saying that, you know, don't be fooled by my size. I have big feet and big bones. I'm pretty sure I have big organs, too. <laughs> Although no one believed me except me. <laughs> and then when Tanya called me and told me that the team met and that I was approved for a direct match, I made her repeat it because I, I, it was just the best moment of my life. Wow. Um, so when I had that conversation with Derek, he had asked if I was interested in going public with it, and I looked at him with the most <laughs> disgusting look, I think, like, you're so secretive about this. Why would you want to go public, and who would care? Huh. <laughs> it was truly a full-time job after that first article went out just to respond wow. to everybody that that were interested in the story. Well, there's no question that you have provided courage. Both of you have provided incredible courage to those people who are struggling with whether or not they should be an organ donor. What was the operation like? Do you, um, do you remember those couple days in the hospital? I do remember the couple days. Um, it was, I'll start by saying it was much easier than giving birth to a child. <laughs> um, the only pain I remember is... Um, you know, getting in and out of bed, of course, you're using your stomach muscles. So those first couple of days, was you're getting out of bed pretty gingerly. And um, other than that, the recovery was very quick. Um, a week later, I was my first outing back to the hospital to see Derek. And uh, um, I, Was the I, operation performed uh, with, the, with the laparoscope? And yes. then there was a small incision to take the kidney out. Is that how it was done? Correct. So there's like a three-inch incision that starts above my belly button, um, goes just around it and below it, and then um, the doctor snatches your kidney from there. <laughs> Claire, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what the – I mean, you was probably so focused on your daughter that uh, the operation may be a blur, but what is it that you remember from the surgery? I remember going to surgery with absolutely no fear. I knew I was in the best hands, and they have instilled that in me from the day I met everyone on the team. So I I really wasn't scared going into surgery at all. My only fear was how my daughter would do because she was so sick going in. I was healthy going in. I wasn't scared. Um, I definitely had pain after, uh, nothing that I couldn't tolerate, especially because I knew my daughter was going through the same thing. And she has been so brave throughout all of this that if she can do it, I could do it too. Sure. Johnny, the, and, and this was the perfect situation from the standpoint of a suitable liver because you could take it immediately from, from the artery supplying blood and oxygen to that segment of liver from Claire that you were going to put into her daughter, correct? That's correct. And I think the key was the timing of it too because Brielle won't have enough, not much time to survive without a liver transplant. It was like the perfect size at this point and with really very minimal time that the organs outside the human body during preservation. And you had waited for Brielle for a period of about four weeks, uh, and there had been no deceased donation opportunity, correct? Or was it longer than that? No, it was from December all the way into April oh, is when she goodness. was transplanted. Wow. Well, so trying to maintain her at home and not in the hospital until the very end when she was way too sick, like days left to live. And she's doing great now? She's amazing. She's full of energy and life, and it's more hard on me trying to keep up with her because she's nonstop and the happiest kid you've ever seen. 
Fantastic. And we certainly know that Derek is doing well because we see him around Milwaukee virtually all the time. Yes, he's a living legend. (laughs) Well, thank you all very much. We'll have a a short break and then our wrap-up session with Drs. Hong and Zimmerman. Talking about innovative medicine with top experts. It's the Word on Medicine on News Talk 1130, WISN. You are listening to the Word on Medicine, where the faculty of the Medical College of Wisconsin are making tomorrow better than yesterday. In our final segment of the show, Dr. Hong will be joined by Dr. Janessa Price and two wonderful people all recent and well-known transplant donors. The perspective of our patients and their families is so important as it is their opinion of the effectiveness of our care that is really important. Dr. Janessa Price received her PhD in psychology from the University of Cincinnati. She joined the MCW faculty in 2016 and will further discuss the complexity of organ donation, both between relatives and those who are not blood relatives. From the patient perspective, we are most grateful to have both of these areas represented. Claire Verstegen donated part of her liver to her daughter, Briel, and Brookfield Municipal Judge Joanne Ehring donated a kidney to her close friend, Milwaukee Court Judge Derek Mosley. Thank you all for sharing your stories of hope and inspiration with us today. Uh, Dr. Price, Janessa, we'll start with you. We have talked a little bit uh, in the program about the, uh, the perspective of the recipient and the challenges the recipient has, 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 has to undergo. We have not really talked about uh, those issues on the donor side. Maybe you can explain that to our listeners. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Um, there are some expected challenges that come up for our donors. So, you know, the challenges that can come with, for example, if it's a family member, um, helping to provide care to that individual, providing support to that individual, and then going through the donation process. Um, You know, really thinking about what could come up for you in terms of medical challenges, thinking about, um, you know, being in the hospital, not being able to provide that support. Some of those expected challenges also occur with respect to the mood. So, um, feelings of depression, feelings of anxiety. Um, What also can come up sometimes in, and this is the importance of having the multidisciplinary team evaluate the patient and having the psychosocial evaluation is really looking at those risk factors that might be present for the donor. So does the donor um, present with any challenges psychiatrically with their history, um, with their history of coping or with treatment, and if those challenges are present, how can we provide the resources through our mental health program to optimize how they might function sure. post-transplant? For the, most of us in this room today are, are relatively familiar with medicine. We deal with it every day, and that's, that's our, our life and our job. What do you do uh, with the donor who is simply just nervous? I am, I'm really scared about undergoing an operation. I know it's something that I would like to do, but I'm just petrified of this. Yeah, and a lot of that during that psychosocial assessment comes from having that conversation with the psychologist and you know normalizing that experience, providing some psychoeducation about um, that most donors do feel that. Um, and you know, across a number of domains. So, you know, with respect to the social support arena that I talked about earlier, with the surgery itself and what can come with that, there's oftentimes um, a change in role 
for a while. So while you're recovering, not working, um, having someone else take care of you, um, being able to maybe continue to provide that emotional support to that individual as well. If there are some you know, risk factors that are present prior to donation, um, so for example, there are some risks in terms of increased depression or anxiety or, or challenges with you know, a traumatic response. So what can happen post-surgery and, and as you're recovering, considering that experience to be quite traumatic and experiencing um, symptoms that are really distressing with regards to that. Um, typically what we see is for those patients who have histories consistent with that before donation, we want to try and provide some interventions and resources prior to that to optimize although function after and potentially reduce the impact on functioning related to those symptoms. So certainly within families, there can be uh, suitable donors who uh, perhaps just aren't sure they're, they can uh, come, to the, come to grips with actually doing it. And then there can be situations, I'm sure, as, as Claire will uh, talk about, where uh, you probably can't prevent them from donating. There's nothing more powerful than um, than the bond between certainly a mother and their child. And Claire, you you donated part of your liver to your daughter. I sure did. Maybe you can tell us that whole story. Uh, well, my daughter was born uh, full term. We thought she was a healthy newborn, had a little bit of jaundice that they just attributed to the newborn jaundice. Uh, it seemed to kind of go away, but... I kind of, I do have a medical background also, I'm a registered nurse, so I kind of had this little inkling in my back of my head all the time, like, is she still a little jaundiced? Is it just her skin tone? And I'd thrown it out to my family members, they kind of thought I was kind of not thinking that was true. Um, but right before she was two months old, we brought her to the doctor, and they confirmed our fear that she was in fact jaundiced, and her liver panel was through the roof. So we got sent down to Milwaukee a day later, um, thanks for the amazing turnaround care. And within a week, she was diagnosed with biliary atresia and had a first surgery to try to restore the bile flow out of her liver. Unfortunately, the liver was already too damaged, and by the time she was seven months old, she was listed for a transplant. Wow. And, and how did you find out that you might be a, a possible option to save her? Immediately, I knew there was the option of live donor. I actually have known someone in my local area who had had the same experience with their child. Um, it's very, very rare, but unfortunately, I had known of this situation, and immediately I knew I wanted to be her donor. What can be better than a liver coming from her mom? Um, unfortunately, she was too small because part of the liver failure aspect is they don't grow. She was in the bottom part of the charts, if even on the charts. So when I first went towards Dr. Hong asking if I could be the living donor, they agreed to work me up, but my liver was too big to fit in her. So Johnny, what, what are some of the challenges that occur with, with small babies? And two questions, uh, how do you handle the size issue? And then secondly, um, if, if um, there isn't a, a family member to donate, what would the weight be? Uh, otherwise for a liver for a tiny baby? Yeah, for um, children under five years old, their risk of dying while waiting for an organ is six times higher than an 11-year-old child, just simply because uh, they're very small and it's, it's oftentimes so difficult to find the right size. Um, for patients with, with um, 
uh, without any suitable live do donor, then our program uh, has the expertise on uh, in splitting an, a deceased donor that's been donated as a whole organ, that we split that liver into two, and hence we're able to t save two lives uh, from one donated liver. This is on the deceased donor. So I, I think um, what the strength of our program is that we're able to offer all these options for the kids, knowing that uh, kids under five years old um, are six times at a higher risk of death without any uh, opportunity to get transplanted. Wow. So, Claire, how did we end up with a happy ending to this story? Um, through her sickness, she her liver continued to fail for her, and in part of that, they can develop some fluid that builds up in her abdomen. That fluid, in turn, stretched out her belly so that my liver would fit. By the time she was so sick, they told me she was not leaving the hospital until she had a transplant. And I immediately said to Dr. Hong, it's me, it's me. Um, they continued my, the rest of my workup that they had put on hold when she was too small because he agreed that the belly was large enough to accept it, and it was a go. Well, Johnny, uh, maybe two, a uh, couple minutes on the uh, the technical challenges of the operation. And obviously, mom was probably operated on at Freighter Hospital, and her daughter was at Children's. How did you orchestrate all that? Our programs integrated both the adult and pediatric. While it from the outside, it may seem very complex, I think we have a really well-oiled, well-trained group of expertise that could carry this task, you know, uh, just part of a day job. And so I think uh, one most important thing that we remember is patient safety, which includes our donor. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Joanne, maybe I could, I could turn to you. Um, not only did you donate your kidney to a very close friend, but your story has probably stimulated countless uh, other donations. I mean, I, you probably had no idea that, uh, that there would be such an incredibly positive effect of this. Um, maybe for those listeners who aren't familiar with, with your story, you could uh, recount that for us. Um, well, I was started that um, when Derek was sick, um, he needed a transplant. Uh, for me, it was a no-brainer. Of course, I'm going to step up. And, I, and how and long had this. you known each other? Um, for about 14 years at that time. Wow. Um, and he was sick. Um, we are so different, and, my, and I knew that um, I needed the one thing that you really need is the same blood type. My children are an A. He's a B positive. I thought I was clearly an A. So I started donating blood and found out I was also a B positive. Um, so that was the beginning steps. Um, as far as knowing to, uh, to give a part of me or a, an organ, um, there was no fear. I mean, it, it, I have to say it was the best opportunity ever given to me in my life to be able to, be, to give my or kidney to him. Um, I always compare it to everybody knows somebody who has had cancer and someone close to them, and, and you feel so helpless. You can't do anything. And here I'm able to offer a part of me to, to save his life. Now, because we were so different, I thought that, um, or every, I guess our team thought that I, I was going to be a paired match or a part of a chain. And I kept joking, saying that, you know, don't, be fooled by my size. I have big feet and big bones. I'm pretty sure I have big organs too. <laughs> Although no one believed me except me. 
<laughs> and then when Tanya called me and told me that the team met and that I was approved for a direct match, I made her repeat it because I, I, it was just the best moment of my life. Wow. Um, so when I had that conversation with Derek, he had asked if I was interested in going public with it, and I looked at him with the most... <laughs> disgusting look I think like you're so secretive about this why would you want to go public and who would care huh <laughs> it was truly a full-time job after that first article went out just to respond wow. to everybody that that were interested in the story well there's no question that you have provided courage both of you have provided incredible courage to those people who are struggling with whether or not they should be an organ donor what was the operation like do you, um, do you remember those couple days in the hospital? I do remember the couple days. Um, it was, I'll start by saying it was much easier than giving birth to a child. <laughs> um, the only pain I remember is, um, you know, getting in and out of bed, of course. You're using your stomach muscles. So those first couple days, was you're getting out of bed pretty gingerly. And um, other than that, the recovery was very quick. Um, a week later... I was my first outing back to the hospital to see Derek. And uh, um, I, was the I, operation performed uh, with the with the laparoscope? And yes. then there was a small incision to take the kidney out. Is that how it was done? Correct. So there's like a three inch incision that starts above my belly button, um, goes just around it and below it, and then um, the doctor snatches your kidney from there. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what the I mean, you was probably so focused on your daughter that uh, the operation may be a blur. But what is it that you remember from the surgery? I remember going to surgery with absolutely no fear. I knew I was in the best hands, and they have instilled that in me from the day I met everyone on the team. So I I really wasn't scared going into surgery at all. My only fear was how my daughter would do because she was so sick going in. I was healthy going in. I wasn't scared. Um, I definitely had pain after, uh, nothing that I couldn't tolerate, especially because I knew my daughter was going through the same thing. And she has been so brave throughout all of this that if she can do it, I could do it too. Sure. Johnny, the, and, and this was the perfect situation from the standpoint of a suitable liver because you could take it immediately from, from the artery supplying blood and oxygen to that segment of liver from Claire that you were going to put into her daughter, correct? That's correct. And I think the key was the timing of it too, because Brielle won't have enough, that much time to survive without a liver transplant. It was like the perfect size at this point and with really very minimal time that the organs outside the human body during preservation. And you had waited for Brielle for a period of about four weeks uh, and there had been no deceased donation opportunity, correct? Or was it longer than that? No, it was from December all the way into April oh, is when she goodness. was transplanted. Wow. Well, so trying to maintain her at home and not in the hospital until the very end when she was way too sick, like days left to live. And she's doing great now? She's amazing. She's full of energy and life, and it's more hard on me trying to keep up with her because she's nonstop and the happiest kid you've ever seen. Fantastic. And we certainly know that Derek is doing well because we see him around Milwaukee virtually all the time. Yes, he's yeah. a living legend. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. We'll have a, a short break and then our wrap-up session with Drs. Hong and Zimmerman. You're listening to The Word on Medicine.
Presented by Selig Leasing on News Talk 1130 WISN. In today's final couple minutes, I would like to ask Drs. Hong and Zimmerman to join me for a final word. If both of you could please comment on where you think we will be with organ transplantation in the next five years. Perhaps each of you can comment on one of the two emerging areas of great excitement. Namely, uh, Mike Zimmerman, the use of genetically modified pig kidneys for human transplantation. Our listeners may not may be confused and not have heard me correctly, but I did say uh, the transplantation of pig to human. And second, Johnny, uh, the use of machines rather than ice and cold preservation solutions to circulate human blood, oxygen, and nutrients to the liver before sewing it into the recipient. Mike? Well, that's a great question, uh, Dr. Evans. Thank you. You know, it's it's interesting how uh, things go full circle in science uh, and medicine. Xenotransplantation or, or obtaining organs from uh, other species besides humans uh, has been a subject of, of intense uh, uh, study and debate in the last 30 years. Uh, however, I think that we are very close uh, in the next five years, at least for kidneys, uh, where we've identified molecules that can be altered or deleted, uh, which will allow uh, our scientists to cross that barrier. Uh, so, that the, so that, for example, a, a pig kidney would not be interpreted as foreign and rejected by the human. Correct. Correct. And as we all know, Dr. Starzl, back in the 60s, uh, they transplanted baboon kidneys into six baboon kidneys into humans, and they had rejected with 100 percent uh, rate. Now that number is going to be very low uh, in this particular ki- this particular pig uh, avenue. Uh, with regard to some of the molecules that have been deleted, the body hopefully will not recognize those organs as non-self. So, the, so as Dr. Saad mentioned uh, very early in the program, there are patients with kidney failure who simply uh, can't survive on dialysis. And for those patients, uh, perhaps a kidney uh, from a genetically modified pig may be a life-saving intervention. That's right. And we don't know in terms of longevity how long those organs may last. Uh, It may be that those organs initially are a bridge to the final transplant, which would be extremely useful also. Uh, So there's a lot of exciting things that will develop in the next five or ten years. Great. Well, Johnny, the the issue of, uh, of liver transplantation and how the liver should be managed once it is removed from the donor uh, from from the donor and then put into the recipient is a, a, a huge area of uh, investigation, also an area that you're very interested in in the laboratory. I know that one of the challenges with liver transplantation right now is that uh, the liver, when it comes out of the donor, needs to go right into the recipient, and that oftentimes is a, a nighttime event, which is a huge undertaking. Will there be machines that will, if you will, precondition the organ before it goes into the recipient? Yeah. So one thing that we heard is that there is um, a lot of patients waiting for liver transplant that we don't have enough livers. And in addition, we don't have, the patients waiting for liver transplant do not have the uh, ability to access any machine to keep them alive. So there's urgency in getting a transplant as soon as possible. We know also that among the candidates that who can donate deceased donor organs, we're, throw, we're discarding about 3,000 each year because they're deemed too high risk to use. Now, by instituting an innovations that our lab is also involved in, in trying to refurbish, lack of a better word, you know, re- recondition, refurbish this, organs we're currently throwing away to, make, to convert them to a transplantable organ, that is the hope is in 
is to minimize the number of patients who would die without the, the, the transplant uh, treatment. So the thought is probably within the next couple years, maybe, yes, I, that I a was... kidney would be removed from either a deceased or a living donor. It would then be put on a machine where uh, human blood, nutrients, oxygen would be circulated through it. And if anything, it would be improved before it would be put into the in, back into the recipient, correct? Correct. That, that would serve two purposes for the liver. Is to, one is to recondition, and also it also gives us an opportunity to observe whether it's safe to proceed and use that organ or not. Wonderful. Well, thank you both, and, and thank you to all for listening to our program today. And please join us in two weeks when we return with a fascinating program devoted to colon cancer, chaired by Dr. Carrie Peterson. I would like to acknowledge Selig Leasing Company and their management team for supporting this program, as well as Jerry Bott and Christine Butt at WISN and iHeartMedia, along with our producer, Dave Michaels. I would also like to thank Mara Lord, Anna Saxon, and our program committee, led by Dr. Rana Higgins. We hope you can join us in two weeks, and please visit our website at mcw.edu surgery for more information on this or any other program. If you have additional questions, please send us an email at contactsurgery at mcw.edu.